Hey listeners, it's 2024 and we are so excited for everything ahead this year. If you haven't done so already, make sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash curbsiders where you can get access to bonus episodes. We've already released 18 of them and they come out twice a month. Plus you can get access to ad-free episodes and our private Discord server to hang out with other members of the Cashlack community. That's patreon.com slash curbsiders. So, Moni, I don't know if you um, learned, you know, I love history. And so I don't know if you okay. remember learning about this, but there used to be the signs to protest the Vietnam War. Oh, God, I don't even. Oh, God. It said, make Lovenox not warfarin. <laughs> Can we fire you? <laughs> not yet. That one was good. <laughs> The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Moni Amin, joined by my effervescent co-host, Dr. Meredith Trubit. How are you this evening? Doing pretty well. How about yourself, I guess? That should be polite. <laughs> I'm doing just fine. Thanks for asking. On tonight's show, we discuss perioperative antithrombotic management with our guest, Dr. Purby Hardman. In just a moment, our new guest producer, Dr. Jamie Patel, will tell you a little bit more about our guests. But first, Meredith, will you please remind the good people in the audience what it is we do on the show? Sure, Moni, I'd love to. We are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, and tonight, as you already mentioned, we have Dr. Jamie Patel here, who's guest producing this episode. Um, so, Jamie, why don't you tell us a little bit about our guest tonight? We have a fantastic conversation planned with our guest, Dr. Purvi Hardman, about perioperative antithrombotic management. Dr. Hardman is a former hospitalist who has now transitioned into an outpatient role in the Ohio State University Preoperative Assessment Clinic. When not seeing patients, she stays busy as the Assistant Director of the Global Health Curriculum at OSU. She has her hands full at work, but the chaos really begins when she comes home to her husband, two young sons, and her dog. She's a longtime listener of the Curbsiders, which she says has kept her company on many runs and long drives. Today, we're excited for her to teach us how to assess perioperative thromboembolic and bleeding risks and how we can use this information to build a perioperative antithrombotic management plan for our patients. So without further ado, let's get to it. Reminder that this and most episodes will be available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. And welcome back to Curbsiders. I'm so pumped. We have Purvi here tonight, and we are going to start with a little get-to-know-you stuff. So can you give us like a quick one-liner, if you wouldn't mind? Yeah, so I am, I used to be a hospitalist at The Ohio State University, and after a couple years there, I transitioned over to our outpatient preoperative testing clinic, and that is where I'm currently at as a full-time physician. Um, outside of the preoperative testing clinic. I am also the assistant program director for the global health curriculum for our residents at Ohio State. And I'm not busy doing those things. I am with my husband and three kids. Yes, dog included. Just trying to have a good time. What kind of dog? It's a Bordoodle. So it's a Border oh Collie gosh. Poodle mix. Yes. <laughs> Lots of energy. Yes. And, and what's the dog's name? miles a day. So that's... Oh, my God. Keeps us busy. And what's the dog's name? Rafa. Okay. That's a cute name. Yeah. Yeah, my husband and I, we love playing tennis. So Rafael Nadal was the inspiration. Hence Rafa. As it should be. I mean, he is, yeah. in my opinion, the greatest. But I know he is the greatest. Uh, he's left-handed, so it makes me very happy. Yep. So we'll we'll switch the question a little bit. So um, why don't we talk a little bit, tell us a little bit about your favorite hobby outside of medicine. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I guess I would say that 
if you ask my husband and best friend, they would probably say that finding a really good deal is a hobby of mine. But I think being an Indian woman, that just comes naturally to me. So I don't know. I can't qualify that as a hobby. Um, other things being, I enjoy painting and photography. So that's something that I've recently sort of taken up. Um, you know, if I'm in the mood to have my toddler create a big mess, we'll start a little abstract painting and then photography. It's hard not to take pictures of really stinking cute kids. So that's where I'm at. Should we have to pick pics of the week? Yeah, that sounds good. All right. What she got, Meredith? All right. Um, my pick of the week is going to be, so this episode isn't going to air for a little bit. Um, Cause I, as I mentioned on the last one we did, I'm pregnant and expecting. And so apparently that takes time um, out of your life. And, um, but summer pregnancy in Atlanta is horrific. Um, I don't think it's what anyone planned on. And so I just really would like my pick of the week to be ice cream because I really feel like that's the only thing that's getting me through it. Um, and specifically <laughs> as a native Texan, Bluebell still gets out to Atlanta. So I'm still able to get that. And I just keep telling myself that the Listeria outbreak was from many years ago. <laughs> is it still cookies and cream? Yeah, but I've been doing the ice cream sandwiches for like um, more calorie control instead of opening a whole pint. <laughs> I like this choice. Yeah. Uh, Jamie, do you have a pick of the week? Um, yeah. So my pick of the week is a book that I just read um, as I just joined a book club um, and we read What We Carry by uh, Maya Schonberg Lang. Um, it's a memoir written by a women, woman um, who just became a mother, and it's about her experiences with the shifting roles between uh, being a daughter and then becoming um, a mother to her own daughter. Um, and it, it just kind of hit home um, in a lot of ways. Um, and she deals with all the emotions that come up, the guilt, the anger, um, and eventually acceptance when she realizes how she wants to build her own relationship with her daughter sort of after reflecting on the relationship that she had and um, how that relationship evolves with her own mother. So it's one of those books that like every chapter seems to have one of those wow moments that just like resonates. Um, and I don't know how this author just continues to do it like chapter after chapter. Um, but yeah, it was really good that's a good one um i know what moni's is going to be too and so this is going to be a very heavily like women in medicine pick of the week grouping yeah and and by women in medicine i actually mean beyonce yeah uh so i saw beyonce on saturday at um the the stadium tour the the, the renaissance world tour and specifically what brought me the most joy was um in the row in front of me was a seven-year-old girl who did not stop dancing for the entire two hours and the pure joy on her face. I just wish I could bottle that up and take it with me because it was just so wonderful. And even more wonderful is that her mom did not want to be there. <laughs> she she was like on her phone for most of it, except when um, uh, Crazy in Love came on. I think that was the only time that mom got out of her chair. But other than that, uh, it was just the seven-year-old going nuts. and And it was just... I mean, as you might expect, a Beyonce concert is very empowering. And then you just have this like joyful little seven year old in front of you. And man, I could just I could just do that like, <laughs> indefinitely. So, yeah, I imagine that was like seven year old Moni. If you went to a Beyonce concert, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was thinking about this. Uh, we did. There weren't a lot of women that were selling out stadiums when we were kids. So this was actually a really cool yeah. thing to see, like for the, the girls in the audience and the women, too, because like people that were selling out stadiums when we were kids were like, you know, the boy bands. Yeah. Um, Brittany, Christina. But they weren't selling out yeah, stadiums Christina. necessarily. Okay. Details. Well, anyway, I think, though, this is probably a good non-segue yeah. <laughs> into our first case from Cash Like, Jamie, would you mind taking us there? Sure. Um, so we're going to start off with a case of um, Kathy, who's a 70-year-old woman with lupus, um, antiphospholipid syndrome with prior VTEs, who is currently on warfarin. 
uh, also has osteoporosis, and she presents to the ED after falling while bowling. She was found to have a displaced left distal radius fracture, and the orthopedic surgery team splinted her wrist but recommended that she return for outpatient operative treatment within one week. They asked for guidance with the perioperative management of her anticoagulation. Thanks, Jamie. So I think before we jump in, I think it's important that we kind of like lay out what we're trying to do on this episode a little bit because it's going to be a little bit non-traditional at times. So, um, you know, we had the 2022 um, chess guidelines kind of did the overhaul of the 2012 guidelines. And so lots and lots of things were added in those um, and specifically like the DOAX P2Y12 inhibitors and guidance on periop lab testing were new to the 2022 guidelines. So hence why we're really doing this episode. Um, And with that in mind, I think we can start by maybe just like really building up from the basics um, through like how we want to think about this patient um, going in for their procedure. So, Pervy, can you kind of walk us through how you think about this broadly for a patient, like what framework you may use, um, and then if you want, like kind of going through that for Kathy as well? Yeah, thanks, Meredith. So, um, as you mentioned, there have been a lot of consensus guidelines that are recently being published in in this area, and in addition to the 2022 CHESS guidelines, the 2023 Annals of Internal Medicine article titled Periprocedural Anticoagulation is also a really quick and comprehensive summary for our listeners. But I always struggle because even with a preponderance of all this recent literature, there's just so much variability and so many nuances to think about. So we'll sort of start with an overall approach and then fill in some of the details as we go. So first, I generally like to look at the procedure and the relative urgency of the procedure. So in our case from Cashlack Memorial, Kathy would benefit from an urgent surgical fixation of her radius, really to minimize loss of function from from her arm. Luckily, in this case, we have some time so we can mess with her anticoagulation as necessary. Now, if Kathy were having an emergent procedure, I think we would give her reversal agents in preparation for her surgery, but we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. Secondly, I like to look at the bleeding risk of the procedure. So table two from the 2022 CHESS guidelines that we mentioned stratify surgery based on the bleeding risk profile of each surgery. It's important to remember that this is just based on the surgery alone and does not take any other patient characteristics into consideration. Any major orthopedic surgery is considered a high-risk procedure, which confers a greater than 2% 30-day risk of bleeding. Other major surgeries are things like abdominal surgeries, cardiac surgeries, neurosurgeries, and other thoracic surgeries as well. And then you have on the flip side some of the lower bleeding risk procedures, so things like dental, ICD, and pacemaker placements and minor dermatological procedures. But, you know, you can look at the table to access a full list of all the procedures and their bleeding risk. Third, I move on to look at the patient's thromboembolic risk. And I'll say that this is the area that I struggle with the most because there's a lot of ambiguity and it's not black and white, which is sometimes frustrating because every provider has a different approach here. For Kathy, what really puts her at high, meaning a greater than 10% risk of any arterial thromboembolic event or greater than 10% risk of any venous thromboembolic event a month, which I think is pretty significant as her lupus with antiphospholipid syndrome and her VTE history. A lot of these high thromboembolic risk patients should be bridged. And Table 1 from the 2022 guidelines that we've been talking about goes through this. In addition to Table 4, which is a nice stratification of some of these patient-specific risk factors. Other risk factors that um, are typically also considered high thromboembolic risks are things like protein CNS deficiency, antithrombin deficiency, antiphospholipid syndrome, as in Kathy's case, homozygous factor V Leiden, any recent stroke or VTE 
which has been less than three months, any sort of venous thromboembolism associated with a malignancy, patients with AFib with a CHATS2 VAS score greater than seven, and then your mechanical heart valves that contain the older generation caged ball or tilted disc valves. This episode is brought to you by Freed. Freed is an AI scribe that listens, transcribes, and writes medical documentation for you. Gabby, a family medicine physician, and Irez, a computer engineer, came up with Freed, a solution that could help alleviate the daily burden of overworked clinicians everywhere. And for Irez, selfishly, it would mean that he could spend more time with Gabby, who is spending nights, weekends, and holidays updating medical documentation. Freed turns clinicians' daily workflow into accurate documentation instantly. There's no training time, no onboarding, and no extra mental burden. All of the magic happens in just a few clicks, so clinicians can spend less energy on charting and more time on doing what they do best. Today, more than 4,000 clinicians and their spouses have fallen in love with Freed. Freed is an AI scribe that does medical documentation for you. Charting is critical and necessary, but it steals your focus away from your patients, eats away your time with your family, and keeps you up at night. The burden of always having another chart to complete drains every clinician. Freed is an AI scribe that makes charting go away. Kind of. It does your soap notes for you. Freed listens, prepares your notes, and writes patient instructions. Charting is done before the patient walks out of the room. Freed learns your style over time, just like a human scribe, and it will never quit on you. Freed is loved by 4,000 plus clinicians from every specialty. It is HIPAA compliant and takes only 30 seconds to learn. All of this at a cost of only $99 per month. You can try Freed right now by going to freed.ai. And listeners of Curbsiders can use the code CURB50 for $50 off their first month. That's freed.ai. This episode is brought to you by Allbirds. Folks, if you've ever had to interact with me socially, you'd know that life can sometimes be deeply uncomfortable. It can be awkward and tense, and maybe you're not sure what's happening to you as it's happening. But as uncomfortable as life can be, with Allbirds, your shoes don't have to be. Allbirds are designed with sustainability in mind, so you can feel good about every step you take. So they were nice enough to ship me a pair of their Allbirds Warrunner 2, which is this next level revamp of their cult classic, and it looks and feels fantastic. So I got the black Warrunner 2s that have this gray trim, and they look stylish and sleek without looking too basic, and they also feel fantastic. They've got a lot of great cushioning and support and the super soft material with this upgraded midsole that gives you a first class ride. So I do a fair amount of running. They feel great for that. They would also be perfect for just day-to-day -day wear, especially if you spend a lot of time on your feet. They're made with premium materials that give you an ultra-soft feel. So if this sounds appealing to you, and it certainly should, then you should get yours at allbirds.com and use the code CURB to score a free pair of socks with your purchase today. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code CURB. I was wondering if maybe there's a framework that you use to kind of think through all of this stuff, like just kind of making it a little simpler because uh, I feel like there's just a lot of pieces I'm trying to put together. So I was just wondering if you have like any helpful like framework to think about it. Yeah, definitely. So the framework that I use um, is to stratifying these patients into buckets. So bucket one consists of the low bleeding risk procedures. In these patients, you would likely continue anticoagulation without any interruption whatsoever. Now your bucket two are your... Procedures that are at moderate and high bleeding risk in patients that are at moderate thromboembolic risks. And in these patients, you would definitely hold their anticoagulation, but you probably don't need any form of bridging strategy. But again, this sort of depends on other patient characteristics as well. And this is sort of, in my opinion, the biggest pain point in this entire framework as far as the decision to bridge or not to bridge. Lastly, bucket three, those are your moderate and high bleeding risk procedures in patients that are at high thromboembolic risks. And in these patients, you would interrupt their anticoagulation and opt for a bridging strategy. So sort of going back to our case with Kathy, Kathy being at high thromboembolic risk is getting a high bleeding risk procedure. So that fits into our bucket three. And if Kathy had AFib with a CHATS2 VAS score of six and had a previous stroke or thromboembolic event, your approach would be very similar. However, if 
Kathy was a little bit low risk in that her chats to vas score with AFib was a three, you'd probably stop anticoagulation for go bridging altogether. So before we go too far into, I think, like specifics into bridging and scores and everything, um, let me just make sure I got you. So it sounds like there's kind of four major things you want to think about um, when you're considering like what goes into the decision for what needs to happen next. And that's first, like what procedure are they having? And um, two, um, what's their bleeding risk profile, which I think we'll get into in a second too. And then their thromboembolic risk. And then kind of your fourth step is like, okay, well, what do I need to do with combining all of that information? Does that sound right? Yeah, that's absolutely it. Okay. You already referenced like the different procedures and like, I think anyone would just have to look up where, like what procedure they're having and kind of the bleeding risk profile of that procedure. So then let's talk a little bit more about um, like maybe some of the scoring systems and stuff that help with kind of establishing bleeding risk and uh, uh, thromboembolic risk. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and so to my knowledge, up until this point, there's not a specific scoring system in the setting of periprocedural anticoagulation that helps with the bleeding risk or the thromboembolic risk. The best resource that I have found, again, is from um, the tables that we've mentioned before, as far as table four, from the Annals of Internal Medicine article titled Periprocedural Anticoagulation that came out in 2023. And it's important to note that a lot of these tables or risk tools don't really take into account the type and length of surgery that does affect a patient's thromboembolic risk. In terms of AFib specifically, what we have is the well-known CHATS2-VAS score. Now, what's interesting about the score is that the CHATS2-VAS score also has a high sensitivity for estimating the three-month stroke outcomes in both patients with and without AFib. And then on the flip side, we have the HAS blood score. The HAS blood score is used to balance the thrombotic risks of a patient with the bleeding risks in patients with AFib. And it does have good predictive validity for bleeding risk in patients with BTEs. And studies have shown that a score greater than three does suggest an increased risk of bleeding. Yeah, I'm always trying to figure out which ones to use. And so it's good to know that like, I don't need to go too far outside of what I'm used to, which is, you know, the Chad's Vask and the Hasblood, because I feel like there's like a bunch that always come out, but it seems like the old is gold, if you will. <laughs> um, what do you do with the scores? Like, um, so you get, let's say a high, like someone comes in, um, let's say it's Kathy. She has like a high Chad's Vask and high Hasblood. Um, I often just feel like, well... It's not good either way then. Um, I throw up my hands. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess that's what you're doing for like periop like management is just kind of deciding what that risk is. Um, but are there anything else that like when it's both high, like that you have to consider? Yeah. I mean, when the scores are both high, that kind of puts you in a pickle. And that's when you have to sort of take a step back in one. It can really be a patient-led discussion as far as what they would consider a safe strategy in a perioperative setting. Second, um, I can, you know, you always have the option to reach out to the surgeon, which sometimes I do end up doing because let's say the surgeon considers the bleeding risk of the procedure pretty high and they really, really don't want anticoagulation or bridging anticoagulation on board. So that'll really help guide my judgment. But ultimately, when the scores are both high, I sort of think of what's the most conservative and safest approach that I could provide for the patient, in which case if, you know, they're a high risk of bleeding, let's say because they have thrombocytopenia or they've had prior intracranial hemorrhages, um, anything that sort of predisposes them to high, to really morbid outcomes in the future, I would probably opt a safer strategy. So this, again, is expert opinion, not necessarily anything that's in the literature, but um, a conservative strategy would be my general approach. So no bridging. You know, I, you mentioned surgeons, and I think we we're going to get this later, but I think it kind of fits here. So 
obviously the person doing the procedure is someone to weigh in, but do you ever decide to call anyone else? Like, you know, do you call him? Do you call cardiology? Like, are there, are there every times that you consider bringing them into the conversation? Cause I know in the hospital, I feel like when I call them, sometimes I get, they kind of pass it back and forth. And so I don't, I don't know if there's just like, maybe I'm just like calling the wrong one. And if there's something that some like wisdom as you do this more than I do that you might have to pass on. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on the clinical context, right? So patients, let's say with AFib or patients with mechanical valves, it's, um, I do lean on the cardiologist a lot to sort of help us. Now, mechanical heart valves, there's a lot of literature done and there's a lot of um, guidance on what to do with mechanical heart valves. So it's not as confusing or complicated as, let's say, AFib with a high chats to vascular. Um, but in an outpatient setting, I do have the advantage of having a discussion with the cardiologist and this cardiologist is someone who's known the patient for a long time. And so it makes it a little bit easier as far as, um, management strategies go. I do often reach out to hematology and patients that are, that have any form of hypercoagulable state because again, those are sort of tricky patients that, are at extremely high risk of venous thromboembolisms in the future. No, that's that's really helpful. And I think that actually leads really nicely into the next question, which is talk to me about bridging. Um, like, do I worry about it all the time? Meaning, you know, warfarin, doax, just doax, just warfarin. I can't keep any of this straight. So would you mind kind of working um, our way through that? Yeah. So again, the high... Th- thromboembolic risk patients would need to be bridged. So that's sort of your general framework to begin with. Um, Now, the bridge trial, just to kind of briefly go into it, was published in 2015, and it was a non-inferiority trial that showed that foregoing bridging anticoagulation did not really alter the rates of thromboembolic events, but it did decrease major adverse bleeding. And the BRIDGE study had its own limitations. For example, it only had a small population of patients who are at high risk, meaning patients with AFib with a CHATS2 vascular of four to six. And that population was about 13.8%. And then the very high risk patients, so CHATS2 vascular of five and six, that population was about 3.1%. So again, the study was a little skewed in its um, patient selection criteria, but overall, or it tells you that in patients with AFib with the CHATS2 vascular less than six, you probably don't need to bridge them. Now, there are other considerations to keep in mind and um, scenarios in which you'd want to avoid bridging altogether. So things like patients that have thrombocytopenia or patients like that have a prior intracranial hemorrhage. And then as far as DOACs, Moni, you mentioned um, what to do with those. In general, DOACs have a really short half-life compared to warfarin, so bridging is not really considered to be necessary unless the timing of surgery is unknown, which happens all the time in an inpatient setting where a patient comes in and then you don't really have a clear surgical date. A couple of days later, the patient gets surgery, and um, you know if they're at high thromboembolic risk, you might opt to bridge them through that time frame. Before we go on, um, can we also just, when you talk about bridging, um, I feel like in the hospital where I practice at in my cash lack, we use a lot of heparin drips. Um, But I think that like the low molecular weight heparins are also usable. Um, And just kind of the, can you just walk us through like pros and cons of like which one to use or is there any difference or anything like that for bridging? Um, yeah, so there have been a few studies comparing low molecular weight heparin to IV heparins on fractionated heparin products. Um, and overall, IV heparin does have a slightly increased risk of bleeding compared to low molecular weight heparin. However, like you said, on an inpatient setting, a lot of times we just put a patient on a heparin drip and stop it six hours prior to surgery. Some of the benefits of a heparin drip compared to 
low molecular weight heparin products like enoxaparin, which is what we use at my cash lack, um, or that heparin has a short um, half-life. So you in really quick onset and offset, so you can turn the heparin drip on and turn it off if needed. Whereas enoxaparin, you know, you do need a 24-hour hold if the patient is on therapeutic enoxaparin prior to surgery. So that sort of plays a role as far as your decision-making goes. Yeah, no, I, I think that's helpful to think about. Um, one of the things I think I ran into recently, and I, I think this might have just been a conversation with a hematologist, but like what I didn't realize about heparin drips while I use them plenty in training is just how finicky they are and how hard they are to monitor with all like the anti-10As and stuff. Um, and so obviously the 24-hour stuff with enoxaparin, I think is obviously one of the reasons that we don't maybe think about it as often, but just something I hadn't really thought much about. So I don't know if that's helpful. Yeah. I also think about it sometimes because I'm always like, well, it's a planned procedure. Like it's going to happen that day. But I think all of us who work inpatient know or have worked inpatient know that like everyone gets bumped. And so like it kind of makes sense too that if you're more concerned about a higher risk like thromboembolic event that um, and there's any doubt in your mind about like length of time that you end up having probably a little bit more control with like a unfractionated heparin versus like a low molecular weight. Um, but if you're pretty confident in it with this and you're more worried of maybe about bleeding risk than maybe the low molecular weight heparins. Um, I guess while we're on the topic to um, what modifications, like if any, do you consider for like um, end stage renal disease patients? Generally. Low molecular weight heparin products like enoxaparin, if you're using those as your bridging strategy for patients, you can't really use them um, in patients with end-stage renal disease or creatinine clearance less than 30. And so, again, IV heparin is preferred for those patients as far as bridging goes. Now, with some of the DOACs, a 48-hour hold is still pretty sufficient if the bleeding risk of the procedure is moderate to high. However, some guidelines do opt for a 72-hour hold there. Dabagatrin is an agent that we don't really use here as often, although you might encounter it at some point, and that does require a longer hold, so a four-day hold in patients with a creatinine clearance less than 50. And then I just like to add not just modifications for ESRD, but the American Society of Regional Anesthesia Guidelines now calls for a 72-hour hold for most DOAC. So your apixaban and riboroxaban would need a 72-hour hold in patients getting noraxial anesthesia. So things like epidurals for um, pain purposes during surgery. Yeah, that was actually one of the things that I highlighted in the guidelines because I was like, I don't think I've ever thought about that part. but. I mean, makes sense. Yeah. And I think when I saw that, it made me wonder about lumbar punctures. That's literally what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, LPs, if you look at some tables, LPs are actually considered moderate to high risk for bleeding. It was kind of an aha moment for me because previously as an hospitalist, I can't tell you how many LPs I've done with you know, patients on dual antiplatelet therapy and maybe even anticoagulation. It's just something you don't think about as LPs being somewhat moderate to high risk, but I guess they just have more devastating um, ramifications if you do have a bleed. So I think all of that's really helpful. And I feel like we have a much better like framework of like how you're thinking about, like how you go about thinking about these patients um, and when you're risk stratifying them and what to consider. Now we're going to kind of get into a little bit more of like nitty-gritty details of it. So in what situations might you recommend delaying any planned procedures due to the um, anticoagulant therapy that they're on? Yeah, that's a great question. So if a patient's being considered for an elective surgery and they have recently just had a stroke or a venous thromboembolism less than three months, or if they have new onset AFib or an acute intracardiac thrombus, it's probably ideal to delay the surgery in these cases. And again, since it's an elective surgery, you have time to wait. Um, a quick word on venous thromboembolisms. So any unprovoked DVT or PE has a higher risk of recurrence with, with a hazard ratio of 2.3 compared to a provoked VTE. And 
within that first month of a diagnosed venous thromboembolism, the risk of recurrence is as high as 40% in a lot of studies. And so again, if the surgery is elective, waiting greater than three months after at least one month, but ideally greater than three months after the event is preferred. Now, if the surgery is urgent or emergent, I would likely initiate a discussion with the surgeon about the risk benefit, especially if they're planning to do the surgery within a month of a recent thromboembolic event. And again, if there's an option to delay, that would sort of be the route that I push them towards. And then with nuance at AFib, that's another situation that um, I often sort of want a little bit more of a workup prior to okaying them for surgery. So if the length of AFib has been greater than 48 hours, which is really hard because a lot of our patients aren't really able to tell us how long they've been in AFib for, I generally proceed with an echo to make sure that they don't have any sort of acute um, LV thrombus prior to okaying them for surgery. So when someone has had a recent stroke from their AFib, are they kind of falling into those categories where you're thinking through them like on the AFib spectrum? Are you thinking of them kind of on the VTE where you're trying to delay it for like that like three-month period or is it completely separate? So I think of it more from a VTE spectrum as far as stroke is concerned, um, not necessarily VTE, but an arterial thromboembolic event. After six months is technically ideal for a stroke, but you can go as short as three months. And that, um, as far as recommendations go, the difference between three months to six months, and I don't know the actual numbers, but just um, three months and six months, the difference in stroke recurrence is not as significant as between one month and three months. So you have the option to wait three months. Again, if they can wait longer than six months is fine. And that would be for your elective procedures. And then you would do the same if it's like urgent or emergent. You would talk to the surgeon to kind of weigh that risk benefit um, and make a decision out of that. Mm -hmm. Let's say you have them coming in. There's something that's urgent, emergent, either or, I guess. Um, And the surgeon's like, yeah, we need to, you know, this is important. We need to do the surgery now. Um, And the patient's taking like their anticoagulation. Um, What options are there? Are you considering like reversal agents, um, letting them ride, um, you know, and I I guess the answer is going to be different too for like vitamin K antagonists versus DOAC, but maybe walking us through how you think through that. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess if the surgery is absolutely emergent and that there is severe life-threatening consequences if they did not undergo surgery, then yes, um, using reversal agents in patients that are anticoagulated is what we generally do. And um, so this is also something that you have to address on a case-by-case basis. So overall, in sort of broad brushstrokes, as far as reversal agents go, you know, if a patient's on Orphan, then IV vitamin K and four-factor PCC can be used. Okay, so what I'm hearing is that in general, especially some of these like more nuanced ones, you just kind of have to think through them case by case. Like no framework's really going to fix that. Um, but kind of like you did there at the end with um, talking about like reversal agents and stuff, are there any like common pitfalls you see pe- traps people fall into when they're thinking through periop stuff? like? Uh, overestimating their clot risk or like, I mean, I'm I'm sure I'm guilty of misusing bridging. So um, are there like any things that you notice that are like kind of common themes of people that seem to stumble on? Yeah, this is a hard question because, you know, as we sort of talked about um, in our discussion, the guidelines are all just so new and the guidelines are all so different too. And so it's hard to sort of put yourself in another clinician's shoes to sort of figure out what they're thinking as far as the bleeding risk and the thromboembolic risk. But overall, you know, I I get a few requests from surgeons to bridge DOACs a lot. I'd say that is something that's common and um, not really understanding, you know, the short half-life of the DOACs. Another 
common pitfall is overestimating the thrombotic risk and overbridging, especially in an inpatient setting. You know, we sort of talked about it's just easy if you think that the patient does have a few risk factors, but not necessarily all, and they might not need to be bridged as we talked about previously. And then lastly, just the whole duration of some of the DOACs, just the variability in different literature with the whole times confuses a lot of people. And honestly, it sort of confuses me. <laughs> like I always have to keep referring to a table that is my go-to table. And which one's that? Just um, asking for a friend. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we have our internal guidelines at our Cashlack Memorial Hospital that we use. And that's sort of, it's just glued to memory by now. Um, again, the chest, they don't really have specific hold times, but actually the um, they do a pretty good job with some of the anti the DOACs and then also the antiplatelet agents as far as hold time goes. Yeah. So I think just kind of picking one and being consistent probably is helpful since there are so many answers out there, I would think. Yeah. Think. And then just to add to that, the um, American Society of Regional Anesthesia, again, for a lot of folks getting neuroaxial anesthesia, they have a pretty comprehensive guideline too, as far as hold time goes. So I'll refer to that as well for the neuroaxial cases. This episode is brought to you by Pathway. What is Pathway, you might reasonably ask? Pathway is a new clinical decision support tool that empowers practitioners to make evidence-based decisions quickly and efficiently. Right before cracking open this recording, I was actually using Pathway to look up myocarditis. Uh, We just recorded an episode on that, and I was hoping to consolidate knowledge. And it's remarkable. Pathway pulled together a bunch of different guidelines and really pulled out the key features and things that I needed to know that would be really clinically relevant to me. Pathway simplifies guidelines, trials, and complex medical data for easy interpretation and application at the point of care. And now Pathway features the Spotlight Pathway AI, which they describe as the ChatGPT for doctors. It is a distinct, powerful feature of the Pathway tool that provides concise, reference-backed answers to your clinical questions. Pathway is committed to democratizing access to medical knowledge and is a no-cost tool, but they also provide a paid version that has extra functionality, like the ability to claim unlimited CME for every search and every article view. Pathway is updated daily, which keeps users in the loop with the latest medical research and guidelines. This way you can stay updated without sifting through piles of papers, although I have to say I still have piles of papers. And today I would encourage you to take advantage of this innovative tool to improve your clinical decision-making process and enhance your patient care. Download the Pathway app today by visiting pathway.md or use the link in the show notes. Again, I, I can't emphasize it really does a nice job of pulling together multiple guidelines in this concise, very easily readable form. So if this sounds good to you, visit pathwaymd to check it out. That's really helpful to think about the DOACs and all that. Uh, I know one of my common pitfalls is dealing with warfarin. Uh, and mainly, you know, what's the hold time just in general? Like, what is should I be shooting for? I know, like, in patient setting, it gets a little messy sometimes. But, like, what is the ideal state? And then also, half the time they come in, like, their INR is sub-therapeutic. And then sometimes it's, like, seven. So, like, what do I do with that? So starting first with, like, What's the ideal state? And then some of these other little wonky ones. Yeah. Um, so in an ideal state, you would want to hold warfarin for about five days prior to surgery. And then really just allow your INR to normalize to 1 to 1, 1.2. And then as far as a bridging strategy, you'd want to start a low molecular weight heparin product like enoxaparin or adultaparin. We use enoxaparin at our institution. And that would be at a dose of one milligram per kilogram Q12 hours, 36 hours after the last Coumadin dose. And then you can hold that 24 hours prior to surgery. So that, again, is an ideal outpatient setting where the surgery is planned. Now, a lot of times, as you guys mentioned, in an inpatient setting, we have IV heparin that we can use for bridging, realizing that it does sometimes have an increased risk of bleeding compared to enoxaparin. But if you're opting to use IV heparin, then stopping IV heparin four to six hours prior to surgery is generally recommended. Now, as far as um, supertherapeutic and subtherapeutic INR, so with supertherapeutic INR, again, you can hold warfarin for seven days prior to surgery. 
As far as sub-therapeutic INR, specifically, I don't change my management. I still use a five-day hold because regardless, the patient, if they're going to be bridged, they're going to be anticoagulated in some way, shape, or form. So I oscillate between five and seven days depending on their INR. And do you still start the, if you're going to use IV heparin, do you still, and let's say their INR is in a normal range for them, do you still start like that IV heparin like 36 hours um, after the warfarin was stopped or like if they're on the inpatient setting or are you like waiting for their INR to actually drop? Because we, we end up checking it every day and I feel like mm-hmm. that might, that's what we end up doing. I don't know if that's right, though. Yes. So in an inpatient setting, you have the advantage of checking the INR. And as soon as it drops to less than two, you can start an IV heparin drip. Usually that does take, and again, depending on a patient's metabolism, but um, a day or two. So no, 36 hours would not be specific to heparin, but you have more data points to help with your decision making in an inpatient setting. And then just hypothetically, because, you know, this never happens to me. Let's say you're checking it every day, the person's inpatient, and their INR is still on the higher side, um, like the day before surgery. Is there any role for like giving them any vitamin K like on that day before surgery to try to like ensure that the surgery can happen? And because to me, there would be downside when you're trying to restart them too on the back end. You bring up a good point as far as downside on the back end. I guess it depends on which lens you're looking at. So from a surgical bleeding risk standpoint, which is sort of something that I focus on a lot, I'd rather the patient have IV vitamin K and that we minimize their bleeding risk going into surgery as opposed to worry about um, trying to bring the INR back up. So I would say yes, if the day before surgery their INR is still not as close to 1 to 1.2, IV vitamin K or even, you know, FFP the morning of surgery are good alternate options. Um, so now let's say we go back to Kathy, who we haven't talked about for a few minutes now. She's getting sad. We've forgotten about her. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Kathy, we optimize her. She like her numbers look good before surgery. And she had her surgery. And so now we're like back and we're trying to resume her like um, warfarin. Um, when when do you give that first dose postoperatively for the warfarin? Yeah. So generally for warfarin, if 24 hours after surgery, you can start the patient on their home dose as long as hemostasis has been achieved. And again, this is a discussion with the surgeon and the surgical team as far as whether they think that they have successfully minimized any other bleeding risks. And do you concomitantly restart them? Because you're going to bridge them on that back end. So are you concomitantly restarting like their heparin drip and, and or, or not and or don't start everything? <laughs> um, or Meredith, what are you doing to Kathy? <laughs> Kathy's going to die on my watch. Um, heparin or like their low molecular weight heparin to bridge them? Yeah, you can... Um, Yes. So since we've already decided that Kathy needs bridging, you would start either, not both, um, heparin or enoxaparin for this patient. Now, you can start the enoxaparin or heparin 24 hours after surgery as well, because realizing that, um, you know, warfarin will take time for the INR to get to therapeutic levels. And if the surgeon is okay um, and hemostasis has been achieved, then 24 hours after you sort of restart both to help with their anticoagulation postoperatively. And one more what if for Miss Kathy. So what if she's not on warfarin and she was on a DOAC, but we're talking about restarting her DOAC. Is it the same 24 hours? No. So if Kathy were on a DOAC, um, the CHESS guidelines actually do mention that for DOACs, waiting greater than 24 hours is probably ideal. Again, uh, the rationale behind this is that because DOACs don't have any form of reversal agent that is easily accessible or cheap, waiting a little longer after hemostasis has been achieved is generally an acceptable strategy. Okay. I think those are all my what-ifs for Ms. Kathy. 
Man, you're putting Kathy through the ringer. I know. She's on heparin, anoxaparin, a doac, <laughs> warfarin. <laughs> what are you doing? She will just want to see what will surgery ever again. <laughs> uh, Jamie, I think this is actually probably a good spot to recap since we've covered, I mean, so much ground. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your approach with us, Porvi. Um, perioperative anticoagulation management is clearly a really complex issue, and you've shown us that each patient requires an individualized plan. It always feels like this delicate balancing act where we're weighing different risks um, and patient characteristics, but you've addressed a lot of high-yield points, and I think your structured approach is a great way to keep clinicians organized. Um, you've also shown us that um, there are times to recommend delaying a surgery as long as it's safe, such as when we're dealing with a recent stroke, acute DVTs within the first three months, acute intracardiac thrombus, um, or new onset AFib. On the other hand, in cases of emergent procedures, it seems like we do have some options for anticoagulant reversal. Um, and although this topic can be incredibly nuanced, I think with your structured stepwise approach, we can all hopefully avoid some of those common pitfalls that you talked about, such as overestimating thromboembolic risk and overusing bridging anticoagulation. Awesome. Um, so I think that's a good place to kind of maybe segue from anticoagulation a little bit and into antiplatelets. You want to add that to the heparin and the anoxaparin, right? Yeah. I want them on triple therapy. And by triple therapy, I want them on seven agents. <laughs> so, before, go ahead. Jamie, before Meredith just, I don't even want to go where, can you please take us to the next case? Sure. So, our next case is Ronald, who's a 67-year-old man with coronary artery disease status post-percutaneous um, intervention with drug-looting stent plastic placement in his left circumflex back in 2020. He's also got type 2 diabetes, hypertension, and obesity, and he presented to the hospital with chest pain and was found to have um, an, a non-ST elevation MI. Prior to his admission, he was taking aspirin, atorvastatin, carvedilol, and lisinopril. He was initially treated with a heparin drip and was lo loaded with clopidogrel. His high-sensitivity troponin peaked and then subsequently downtrended. Um, and as part of his workup for his NSTEMI, he received a left heart catheterization and was found to have, unfortunately, severe three-vessel coronary artery disease, which is going to require coronary artery bypass grafting. The cardiac surgeon asked that the clopidogrel be held for at least five days prior to performing his cabbage. Um, unfortunately, this seems to be a common scenario that we encounter in inpatient medicine, and it brings up another important piece of periprocedural antithrombotic management, which is what do we do with antiplatelet therapy when a procedure is needed? So, Purvi, what's your general approach to creating an antiplatelet management plan? What kind of factors do we need to consider? Thanks, Jamie. So my approach to antiplatelet therapy is very similar to that of antithrombotics. First, you sort of like to look and see why the patient is needing antiplatelet therapy. As far as aspirin goes, a lot of studies surrounding aspirin in the perioperative period deal with aspirin for secondary prevention, not necessarily primary prevention. Um, and the POIS-2 trial was kind of a two-part study. The first part showed that amongst patients that are undergoing non-cardiac surgical procedures, the um, aspirin was not necessarily beneficial in reducing the incidence of death or MI, but it did increase the risk of bleeding. So in extrapolating this data, I usually tend to hold aspirin if it is used for primary prevention in patients that are getting surgeries that are at high bleeding risk. So again, this is an area where there is a lot of variability, but that's my general approach. Now, the caveat to aspirin therapy is that if it is used for secondary prevention, you can almost always continue aspirin therapy except for certain cases, and we'll talk about those cases here in a little bit. So this was sort of based out of the second part of the POISE-2 trial that showed that in patients like Ronald, who do have a history of a prior stent placement, 
Aspirin was beneficial in reducing their perioperative MIs compared to placebo. And this was regardless of the duration of the stent placement compared to the surgical procedure. Again, if aspirin is used for secondary prevention, you can almost always continue it except for cases um, that involve neurosurgical procedures, certain urological cases, and then posterior chamber ophthalmic cases that require a retrobulbar block. So that's aspirin. And then when we think about treatment with um, P2Y12 inhibitors, we generally have to stop the P2Y12 inhibitors. There are certain timeframes as far as hold time goes for certain P2Y12 inhibitors. But if a patient is on, let's say, clopidogrel, you will need to stop that five days prior to surgery. Now, if they're on clopidogrel monotherapy, for let's say recurrent strokes, we do have the option to transition the patient off of the P2Y12 inhibitors and onto aspirin only that they can take throughout their perioperative period. Okay. So obviously holding on the front end is important. Um, I think the part that I always also struggle with is knowing when we restart it on the back end, uh, I think that would be helpful. Yeah, so for some of the P2Y12 inhibitors, again, because a lot of them are um, irreversible agents, waiting a little bit longer is an acceptable strategy. So um, greater than 48 hours after surgery, again, discussion with a surgeon is necessary here because you can't start a P2Y12 inhibitor and then reverse them as easily. Yeah, can't take it back kind of thing. Yep. And what about aspirin that is technically reversible? With aspirin, again, for primary prevention, and in certain cases would really be the only time that you hold the aspirin. Since you're sort of continuing aspirin through the perioperative period, honestly, you could probably restart aspirin within 12 hours after surgery. So I don't, you don't necessarily need to wait as long with aspirin therapy. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about his cabbage situation and like what we do with his uh, management there. Uh, I think the thing that always trips me up, and I think it's just like me going back to my panic as a med student, is what's the difference in sort of holding times for drug-eluting stents versus bare metal? It sounds like you mean wait times after bare metal stent and drug-eluting stent. So in patients that are getting elective surgeries, it's ideal to wait six weeks after bare metal stent placement and then six months minimum after drug-eluting stent placement. The rationale behind this is that major adverse cardiovascular outcomes are the highest in the six-week timeframe following a stent placement, and then it sort of plateaus after six months. But again, this is really for some of those elective cases. And even urgent cases with emergent cases, you probably don't have much of an option and would likely proceed to surgery. Um, and I guess that's a good segue into talking about like which consultants you'll need. Um, so obviously, if you're talking about like recent stenting and everything, if there's any question, I imagine you'd have like your cardiologist involved. Um, are you kind of deferring, though, for like um, which like specialist you may need based on the event that you're kind of trying to plan around? So i.e. kind of to what Moni's question was on the previous case, like neurology, if it was like a recent stroke, cardiology, if it was like recent stenting, um, hematology, if you're just throwing your hands up in the air like you just don't care. Yeah. Like what rumble are you going to start in the street? <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, I think the biggest one here is cardiology for, and especially in Ronald's case, um, you probably want their input throughout Ronald's hospitalization. But yeah, patient with a recent MI that is on dual antiplatelet agent, having the backup of your friendly cardiologist is really helpful. All right. Purvi, do you have any take-home points for us? I know we covered like so much ground. Yes, that's a lot of information. Um, that we covered, but some key take-home points that I would like to highlight are uh, for any case, looking at the bleeding risk, the thromboembolic risk, and then sort of 
using those two pieces of information to determine which one of the three buckets that a patient falls into is a good starting point and a good framework to consider. Um, now, remember that some of the low-risk procedures do not need any form of interruption in anticoagulation or antiplatelet therapy. And lastly, you can almost always continue aspirin monotherapy, except for certain neurosurgical, urological, and ophthalmic cases. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Okay, okay. Still hungry for more? Yep. Join our Patreon and get all episodes ad-free plus twice monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash curbsiders. You can find show notes at thecurbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list and get our weekly show notes in your inbox, including our Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or email us at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Special thanks again to our writer-producer, Dr. Jamie Patel, and to our whole Curbsiders team. Our technical production is done by the team at Podpace. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media, and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Until next time, I've been Moni Amin. I'm Jamie Patel. And as always, I'm still Meredith Trubit. So thank you and good night.